Father, we can never thank you enough for the privileges of privilege. And that is to be able to consider what the cross means to each and every single one of us. Uh, Father, I don't even think we can comprehend what that cost meant that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever of us would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And, and the perfect God of this universe came down to this earth to, to allow himself to be nailed to a cross, to take upon himself our sin, the sin of this whole wide world, And then, Father, you um, allowed us, sinful people, through faith to trust in your your Son so that we might be able to live eternally with you. It's uh, it's beyond comprehension, really, Father. It's almost, uh, as some would say, it's like a fairy tale. It's it's almost too good to be true. And, And yet, Father, as we just sung, I wonder how many of us would understand the cost to see our sins upon that cross. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you for everyone here. Pray your blessings upon us all. In Jesus' name, amen. How are you? Great, good. I'm I'm really good. Thanks for asking. I um, feel pretty good. feel really excited about this particular message for you. This particular message, you know, I don't want to get morbid here, but if the Lord was to say, John, you, you know, this is, you know, this is your last message. You're going to go. You're dying. You know, uh, what do you want to? Do you want to change your mind? Was this what you'd like to speak on? It would be exactly this message. There is this particular message that really cuts it real thin and cuts it really narrow and allows us to see what the cross really means to us. We've, we've, we've been looking through the church through Acts chapter 2. If you want to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 for a moment, please. While you're turning there, may I get to just some business and then get into this? There are two announcements that I really should make. Number one is today's the last day. If you would like to be involved in Olive Crest, we, we have taken upon ourselves as a church to have an outreach. And... Uh, We've partnered with a, a group called Olive Crest. It's a local Christian organization. And our, our part in it is to help um, uh, care for and feed and give gifts to abused children and families in need. And if you would like to be a part of that, all the instructions are out in the foyer. Just please ask. But this is the last Sunday that we can sign up to help. The second thing is kind of important to me as a church, and I hope it is to you, would love for you to, to bring a photo of your family in, and uh, maybe a special Bible verse. We want to hang that up on, the, on our tree. We'd like to make that a tradition where we hang all of our pictures up on the trees uh, around here, and then for the Christmas service that we'll have, we'll have a slide presentation, and every family will be shown. And so if you'd be kind enough to... Um, Give us one of your pictures, either, I don't know how you do it, email it in, I don't know all that stuff, but you can, you can get it in, and um, we'd love to be able to do that. I ask you please to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want to talk about this place in Scripture. We have taken a look at two of the ordinances that I see that the Bible says that we ought to be continually devoted to. Two of the six. Four mentioned in this one verse itself. 
And as I've taken a look at it now, and now I've gotten a little deeply into it, looking both at the at be continually devoted to the apostles' teachings that we've, we've kind of looked at. The second thing we looked at was we are to be continually devoted to fellowship with one another. We've come to now the third prong of these four that is seen within this one verse, and that is we are to be continually devoted to communion. But I want you to see how they fit together, and they do. Number one, unless you and I understand the Word of God, we'll never know exactly what it is that God desires of us. We'll never really know what does it really mean to be a believer. Today, I think I want to, the best I know how, to nail that down in your mind and your heart. So without understanding and knowing the apostles' teaching, you and I will really not know where we stand And we will be like any other group of people that go here and there trying to figure out how do we reach up to God? How do we we make that connection? And so the Apostles' teaching kind of answers that for us. Once we understand the teaching of the Apostles, then we are to have fellowship with each other. And we we come to understand that the word fellowship means partnership or partnership. Um, sharing with one another. It is the whole idea of what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. We are to equip one another. That's the gifts that you and I have. The gifts that you and I have been given by God, we are to use to equip one another so as to do the work of service. In other words, to do the ministry that God's called us to do as a church. And and let's face it, we can't all do it uh, alone Collectively, we could do so much more. So that, it says, to finish up verse uh, 12 of Ephesians chapter 4, so, Ephesians 2, is it? 4. 4. So as to build up the body of Christ. That's our ultimate goal. The ultimate goal for you and me, if you want to know why we're alive, we're to equip one another. So as to do the work of service, to build up the body of Christ. That's why we're alive. And so that's what fellowship is truly all about. Fellowship isn't so much going over there and having a cup of coffee and a donut with one another and just laughing and all that, but that's, that's part of fellowship. But the true ambiance, I guess you'd say, I'm trying to, what am I throwing out words? I don't even know what they mean. The true, <laughs> uh, the true idea of fellowship is that we center our thoughts and our hearts and our minds upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we partnership together to accomplish what he's asked us to do so as to build up the body of Christ. The moment you and I do that, we really seriously take that as consideration, we are in desperate need of communion. Because communion in and of itself, as we have been told by our Lord, it is a time of remembrance of what he has done for us. It is a remembrance of what was done at the cross who he is, why he lived, why he said what he said, why he died, so that you and I might remember those things so that we would recall the very essence of the cross, and that is he died for our sins. Our sins are forgiven. Do this. Take it. The bread and the wine, the, the, the juice of Christ, or the, the bread and the wine so as to understand the whole remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us upon the cross. And the reason communion is so important is trust me, please trust me in this. The moment you and I get serious about studying the Word of God, the moment we get serious 
about trying to accomplish what God wants to do through us, through fellowship, there will come an attack upon us. And there will come an attack so that there would be disharmony, so that unity would fall apart within your family, within your relationship with others, God forbid, within the church. And then hardships or hard feelings will happen. And I don't want to work with that person. That person's a, is a bum. It's, that person's mean. And, and they, if you knew what they did to me. And then comes communion. Where we're to forgive one another. Where we're even to forgive those who are unwilling to ask for forgiveness so that there can be harmony within the body of Christ. Lastly, let me tell you what we're going to get to in a couple of weeks after we do communion. Next week we're going to have a special service on communion. You won't want to miss next week. We'll have music interspersed with a lot of messages, just little tidbits, but we will, we will center our whole thought next week on having communion. And what we're going to do today is kind of set the tone. But the last thing that we will study after communion is prayer. And listen, look at how the Lord puts this together. Continually devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread or communion, to prayer. Because without prayer, all of this is for naught. You and I can't do one little even thing without the, without the prayers and without the guidance of God, without the power of God. He allows us to do whatever it is that he's called us to do. And so we can see how this fits together. It's, it's a magnificent, just a short verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, but it, it says so much for us as a body of believers. Now, look with me, please, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Would you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Communion is called about four or five different things within the Word of God. Here in Acts chapter 2.42, it's called the breaking of bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11, it's called the cup of blessings. It is called the Lord's table. It is called the Lord's supper. Whatever it may be called, communion, there is a purpose for it. There is a reason that we would continually take communion until the Lord returns. It is so that we might have the forgiveness between us and God and us and one another. Now, the reason I wanted you to look with me at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment is to see the seriousness of taking communion. I think sometimes churches go to communion and they just haphazardly take communion. And, and I don't want that to be a part of us anymore. I want us to really understand what it is we do when we take upon ourselves the bread or the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says... Well, Paul, Paul is writing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 25, Paul writes, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, verses 27, 28, and 29 are sticky verses. 
They are verses that you and I need to understand as a body of believers. In verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that person shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Rather, it says in verse 28, Let a person examine themselves. So let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the person who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, Paul writes, many among you are weak and sick and some sleep. In other words, some have died. But he says in verse 31, if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged And so what he is asking us to do when we go to take communion, whenever it is that you and I take communion, that we do it in a worthy manner. In other words, that we, we, we ask for forgiveness unto the Lord and we ask for forgiveness to others and accept their forgiveness so that we might take communion in a worthy manner. And so that's why I wanted to take this lesson upon us today so that we might consider who is the Lord What does he mean in our lives? And give each of us an opportunity to cleanse ourselves, so to speak, to to make ourselves right before the Lord. I want that with all my heart. So would you pray with me, please, that we we might see that take place. Father, please, would you do us the greatest of honors? Would you move me aside? And um, would you, Father, uh, empty each of us of our own selves, our own... um, agendas, whatever it is that we have, that we might, by your grace, hear from you. Would you open up our eyes and our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, so that we might, so that we might behold, dear Father God, wonderful things from your word. I pray your, 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 your movement of the Holy Spirit upon each of us. Move upon us, dear Father. Fill this place with your righteousness. Fill this place, Father, so that we might sense your presence among us. We pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. God placed communion in in considering the church of, of, of being a people who are continually devoted. He placed communion in here for a reason. He placed it in here so that once we understand the Word of God and know what it is He's asked us to do, and once we start to do it as a body of believers in fellowship with one another and start to equip one another and start to uh, um, do the work of service so that we might see the, the body of Christ being built up, He put in there a safeguard so as that we might not kind of go astray, so that we might not have have disunity within the body of Christ so that there would be unity. And that is what communion will do. Communion causes peace and harmony within the church, first and foremost, between you and God, between us and God. Secondly, between us and one another. There's one thing that every one of us here at this church has in common. We're all human beings. The one thing that all of us have in common is just a common thread throughout all of the world, all of life. The one thing that all of us walk out of here in the same boat is we are all sinners. 
Not a one of us is not. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all of us have sinned and... Oh, nice, nicely done. We have all sinned. I wasn't excited we were all sinners. I was excited you knew the verse. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it tells us the wages of our sin is... Whoa, that means we have no hope. Since all of us are sinners, since all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death, we're without hope. But it goes on to say in verse 23 of chapter 6 of Romans, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the gift that God wants to give to every single one of us who by faith trust and believe in Him. So what we have in common is that we are sinners. Even more so is that there would be a problem because of our sin to bring disunity, to, to break the peace that ought to flow within this place. But our natural tendency is that we're sinners. We're going to get angry with each other. We're going to fall short. We're going to disappoint one another. So how do we get rid of that dilemma? Communion. Remember what our Lord did for us upon the cross. Remember that He wants to forgive us and therefore we are to forgive one another so that within the body of Christ we can accomplish what God has asked us to do because there will not be if we really comprehend what God wants to do in and through our lives, there will not be disunity. So if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if He is in your life, and whatever term you want to call it, whatever it is that your experience says, you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know that He is God, a very God living within you. So that you might be called... I don't know what, believers, uh, Christians, uh, born again, uh, children of God, you name it, you put the label on it, the label is really not that important. But once you have that experience, then you and I are expected to be a people who understand and know how to forgive one another when we've caused someone to stumble. Someone might ask, and I think it's a great question, and I, I never get upset when someone asks me, why is knowing all of this so doggone important? I mean, really, John, I've heard this. I've heard it so much that I almost know it's going to happen before it does. You mean to say to me that you believe that Jesus Christ is God and the only way? And they ask me that question like I set the ground rules. They get mad at me like I'm the one that made the whole deal. I put it together. Yep, you got to trust what I say or you don't know or you can't come. And they ask the question, there are so many ways to God in this world in which there's so many religions, there's so many different beliefs. You mean to say that God has narrowed it down to just one way? And you and I have no answer unless we can trust and know and believe what is written within these words. And trust me, people, if people say to you, you can't believe this, this is, 
this is just one of many different books written. You might as well close up shop and talk about the weather. Because unless there is a a common bond of truth, unless there is a two and two that makes four, we have nothing to stand upon. And so this is, in my opinion, the very essence of what truth is. This is where it all begins and ends. But if someone can't come to believe that this is the only way the Bible is, is the truth, then, then there really isn't much to talk about. There really isn't. Because there's no foundation of truth. The only thing I usually ask someone that I'm sharing with, normally it's a friend, is I say to them, well, that's what I believe, but let me ask you a question, please. Is, 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 am, I, am I going really in a wrong way here? Have I made a bad turn? If I continue on in this path, am I okay? More than likely they say, yeah, you're fine. And I go, wow, thanks, because... As far as I understand it, you're in a whole bunch of problems. You, you're, you're in real deep trouble. And then again, it becomes personal. Like, who are you to tell me? And I'm, I'm not. I, I'm, uh, let me just say to you, Jesus Christ says in John 14, 6, you know it. Jesus said, and he didn't stutter. What I love about him the most is he just stood up for what he said. He said, I am the way. You know what? I am the truth, and I am the life. And he didn't leave it there. That'd be okay. That'd be fine. The way, truth, and life, you're, that's good. Thank you. No, he goes on to say, and nobody. <laughs> you guys are awesome. What a church. And nobody, he says, comes to the Father but through me. You talk about chutzpah, if that's the way you say it in the Jewish Tradition. You talk about someone that really has a lot of courage in what he stands for. He has narrowed it down so narrow that he says nobody comes to the Father but through me. And so those aren't our words. That's not our... We didn't make up the ground rules. We, we didn't. We come into the game later when the, when the ground rules were already established. We don't have a right to go to Major League Baseball and say, I don't like the idea that I only get three strikes and I'm out. Would you please give me four or five of them, depending upon who's pitching? Yeah, yeah that's, that'd be fair, wouldn't it? Yeah, if Koufax is pitching better, just if I show up, I get on base. <laughs> No, we don't, we don't set those rules. I'll never forget. I was told this by Johnny Roseboro. I love this story. Please forgive me. I digress. But it's worth it to me. Johnny Roseboro, they're playing in the World Series, and they're playing the Yankees, and Mickey Mantle comes to bat, and Mickey Mantle strikes out on three straight pitches. He, boom, he throws him a fastball away. He throws him a fastball up and in, and then he throws him a yanker, a curveball you wouldn't believe. And when Roseboro caught it, Mickey had not taken his bat off the... And he looked at Roseboro and he says, how does anyone hit this guy? And Roseboro looked at him and says, not too many do, Mickey. Not too many do. The ground rules have already been set. Three strikes, you're out. The conditions of, of who we are and what we believe, they're not ours to set. They have been set by an almighty God. And if you cannot believe what is written in here, then, you know, it looks like it's going to rain today, doesn't it? Because we have no basis of truth to speak about concerning 
everlasting life. So when they ask those questions, I understand they're valid, but but when Jesus has the, the courage to say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and you cannot come to the Father unless you come through me. Look at with me. Look at 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 impacted my life in a major way. I, I am a very, very... I absolutely love 1 John chapter 5 because it changed my life. John writes in 1 John, the fifth chapter, he starts out by saying, whoever believes... You don't need to really go much further than that. That encompasses everybody. All religions, all beliefs, all people, all, all social structure, all people of wealth, people not so much of wealth, it's just whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. In other words, if you say you have a love of God, you're going to love His Son, the child that was born of Him. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we observe His commandments. Observe His commandments? Look at how do you know His commandments? You and I have to study the apostles' teachings. We have to understand what's in here. When we understand these things, when we observe His commandments, we'll know what He has asked of us. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep these commandments. And his commandments, he tells us, aren't burdensome. In other words, you can do it. You can do it. Study, get to know it, keep them. They're not burdensome. You can do it. Verse 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? What? Our faith. It's not a religion denomination. It's not a church. It's not how good you are. What overcomes the world, what gives you the right to be right with God is your faith. And faith is the key that has opened up the door of God from the very beginning of time in the Old Testament to the day in which we live right now, this moment, this hour, this second, this time. It has always been faith. It will always be faith. It is faith that makes you right with God. Those of us who believe, we've overcome the world through faith. And who, verse 5, and who is the one? Who overcomes the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Look at verse 10, 11, 12, and 13. Really impacted my life. It says in verse 10, The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. How much? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that verse. That verse says you either trust and believe what God says or you believe what you want to believe and you end up calling God a liar because you haven't trusted in what he has set for the ground rules. He goes on to say in verse 11, the witness is this, God has given us everlasting eternal life and this life is in his Son. And the person, it says in verse 12, who has the Son has life. And the one who does not have the Son, what? Does not have life. How easy is it? He goes on to say in the 13th verse, These things I have written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that they might know that they have right now, that they have right now everlasting life. If you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you right now have everlasting life flowing through you. You do not have to die to get to heaven. You are a part of heaven right now. Right now. 
You have this life flowing through you. Who is this one? Look at verse 20. Same chapter. Look at verse 20. Monumental verse. It's probably the most important verse in all of Scripture. It says in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The word this there must refer back in the Greek language, must refer back to the last pronoun, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. If you ask any of your Mormon friends that you might see one of their current Bibles, if you look at 1 John 5.20, you'll note that that verse has been changed because it's much easier to change the verse than to change their theology. Their theology is set. Jesus Christ is not the eternal God. But verse 5.20 in 1 John tells us clearly, He is, Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Why? Do we so set our lives upon the fact that that Jesus Christ is everything? It's because it's written within here. If you don't believe this, then you have nothing to stand on. And so what we believe and why communion is so essential to us is because Jesus Christ allowed himself to be nailed to this cross so that you and I would remember all the things that he said, all the things that he has done, all the things of who he is, so that we might understand him, know who he is, and accept the forgiveness and accept the forgiveness of our sins from a God who has come to take our sin away from us because of the blood that he shed upon the cross. It is amazing what God has allowed you and I to have as believers. So communion is given to keep harmony within the church, to keep unity between each other, so that we will not let differences cause us to stop equipping one another. Please don't ever do this. Don't allow some problem that we might have with another person stop us from using our gifts so as to equip one another, so as to do the work of service, so as to build up the body of Christ. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to use our humanness, our sin nature, to stop us from doing the work that God's called us to do. So first, we're to be continually devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. We're to be continually devoted to fellowship with one another. And we're to be continually devoted to communion because we need it because we need forgiveness. More important, we need to forgive others. Some people don't want to ask for forgiveness. Forgive them anyways. Maybe they'll come around. If they never do, at least you've set yourself free from the grief of holding on. When are they going to ask forgiveness? What have they done? They don't know how they have upset me. More than likely, they're out about having a good time. They could care less that you're really in grief over the fact that you've not not gotten their forgiveness. Forgive them anyways. Make yourself well. Look what it says. Jesus Christ, oh my, this is one of my, this is just unbelievable. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get this, I'm trying to really get this down. I'm trying to get it so that I understand how to teach it to you. And I, and I yell across the house. I said, you know, I'm doing something on communion and forgiveness. Uh, you know, and she says, have you considered Matthew 18? And I went, oh, of course, you know, no, I hadn't. I didn't even look. I didn't. Matthew 18, I went and looked. Look with me at Matthew 18. 
Look at Matthew 18. We'll close here. God bless you so much. It says Peter, in Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21, Peter comes to the Lord and says, Lord, how many times do you think we should forgive someone who's really sinned against us? Seven times? You know, seven times, you think about it, that's a lot. I mean, how many times does a person have to slap you in the face to where you finally say, enough? So, okay, forgive me. Oh, no problem. Oh, no problem, two. Oh, no problem, three. No problem, four. Oh, no problem, five. Oh, no problem, six. Oh, no problem, seven. Stop. That's it. That's it. You're done. No, Jesus Christ looks at him and and says to him and then gives him this wonderful parable in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says to Peter, I don't say to you up to seven times, but really to 70 times seven. In other words, forever. (laughs) Peter was thinking, you know, I'm all right here. I'm seven times pretty good. No, Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven. Forever. Forever. So Jesus taught them a parable. It doesn't take, a, again, a rocket scientist to understand that, 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 that Jesus is the king and we're the slaves. Watch. Look at this parable in verse 23. It says, for this reason, Jesus now is going to explain to the guys and the girls, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. That's $10 million. He owes him a hearty amount. He's not able to pay. Since it says in verse 25, he didn't have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and his kids and all that he had, and repayment be made. Verse 26 says, the slave fell down before him prostrated himself on the ground, saying, have patience with me. I'll repay you everything. And it says in verse 27, the Lord of that slave, that king, felt compassion for him and released him and forgave him his debt. He forgave him everything. Wiped the slate clean. You don't owe me a penny. That's exactly what happened to us on the cross. For those of us who accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he wiped our debt clean in that why we were all sinners, every single one of us as sinners, saved by the grace of God, he took that sin that was our debt was, the wages of that was death, he gave us free life. He gave us eternal existence in and through his son, Jesus Christ. He wiped your and my debt clean separated our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he says he remembers them no more. Well, this guy's in good shape. So he went out and found, verse 28. I kind of laugh because of two words, choked him. I love choke. He choked this guy. He says, the slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. Denarii was a day's wage, so the guy owed him about 100 days, about three months of page. He owed him about three months. And it says, he seized him and he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Give me my money. And his fellow slave fell down in verse 29, much as he did before the king in verse 26. And the fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me, I'll repay you. But he was unwilling, it says in verse 30, and he, he threw him in prison 
It goes on to say, when others heard about this, they went and reported back to the king. And look what the king said in verse 33. Should you not, he says, also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? Folks, we don't have to read it anymore. There are people that have done you harm, done me harm. And they don't see that they've done us any harm at all. They feel that they're okay, you're okay, go. For you and me to hold a grudge against them, the only one you're hurting is yourself. Let it go. Forgive them. Forgive them. If they want to come back and repay you or say they're sorry, bonus. But forgive them. Forgive them. There are three people that needs to be forgiven in this scenario. Number one is most important. That's you and God. You need to ask God to forgive you of your sin. The second person you need to forgive is that other person who has harmed you. The third person you have to sin, as far as I'm concerned, is almost impossible. And you know who that is? It's yourself. It's myself. Boy, I tell you what, I beat myself to death. Because I know what a scoundrel I am. I know. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a hypocrite. I just don't try to let you know it. And so when I'm alone with myself and I ask the Lord to forgive me, I, I can't quite allow it to happen because I know more than likely I'm going to screw up again. And I'm going to have to come back to him again and say, you know, it's me. I'm here again. It's the hardest person to forgive. It's yourself. We have some time left in this service. We're going to dim the lights. We're going to play some music. And we're going to give you a chance to come forward for one of three reasons. To ask the Lord. Some of you have said to me, you've asked Christ in your heart. You've just never publicly pro- proclaimed Him as your Savior. And, and you said, you know, if you ever have a service again, I think I'd like to come forward. Well, here you go. Here's your chance. We've had people come in every service so far. The second group of us are those of us that have asked Christ into our hearts. We don't need to do that. And we've professed Him. We don't need to do that, but we need to ask for forgiveness of sin. Maybe in our something we've done to a, a loved one, something we've done to a person that we know uh, doesn't matter, does it? The third group is there's some people out there that just have just raked us over the coal and they're Glad they did it. And we're angry with them, and we need to ask the Lord to forgive them. That one's tough. I have people in my life that even to this day I'm asking them to forgive, but I say, Lord, you know I'm lying through my teeth. I I want you to crush them. I want you to crush them. And can I be there when you do it? I want to watch. But I always end by saying, no, Father, forgive them. I'm telling you and I'm asking you this by faith because you know I don't feel it in my heart yet. I went through that exercise a long time ago with someone and, and, I, and I got to the place where I was at peace in my heart. It went away. It can happen. And so we're going to just play some music. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm just going to ask you to come forward. Kneel here before the cross and, and ask the Lord to take whatever burden it is that you have away whether you've accepted him for the very first time and now have proclaimed it for everyone to see, or you've just come forward to to ask for forgiveness.
I'm going to leave that to you. And next week we're going to have a wonderful time of communion. I love you all. See you next week. I can't wait to, to see you have communion. Um, thanks for being here.